Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back once again to the Need to Know podcast. And today we're going to talk about this regional comprehensive economic partnership agreement that has bubbled up a little bit in the news, uh, a, a trade blocker agreement that uh, has come together in Asia, some implications uh, in China with China relations with the United States and with United States relations with the rest of Asia. And of course, no trade deal would be right without being an acronym. So this one would be RCEP, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. And we're going to start off talking today with Shihoko Goto, who has been on the podcast before. She is our deputy director of the Asia program and handles uh, economic issues for us in the Asia program as well. So what better person to talk to and get started about understanding first, what is this? Welcome back to the podcast, Shihoko. Help us understand this. Yeah, so RCEP is big. It's a big deal. It covers a big region. It is one of the biggest multilateral trade agreements in the world to date. Um, specifically, it consists of all 10 ASEAN member countries. Um, so all of the major Southeast Asian countries, plus uh, China, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand. And it wasn't supposed to be a big deal. It had been under negotiation for eight years. And at that time, TPP was also being negotiated. So it was always seen as the understudy, you know, almost like the secondary trade agreement compared to TPP. TPP, of course, was supposed to include the United States. It was seen as an opportunity for the United States to push the global trade regime and establish new rules especially for um, the, to deal with new economy issues. With the withdrawal of the United States from the TPP, RCEP actually became much more significant because although TPP continued to um, be in play and actually was successfully concluded without Washington's involvement, RCEP, which never had had the United States as a member country, but had had China in it, was gaining momentum. And now we see that RCEP has been successfully concluded. Now, there are two issues, really. One is, how does this enhance China's standing in the region? But more, perhaps more practically, what does this mean for Asia at large, especially for the countries that are not China? China certainly is playing this up as, it's a, as a big win for them. But bear in mind that this initiative actually came from Southeast Asia, and it is seen as a trade uh, agreement, a trade framework that elevates the standing and the uh, ability for middle powers to really reflect and articulate their voice and their presence in the international trade order. I want to try to understand something here because you have TPP, which does not include the U.S. It does not include China. You have RCEP, which does include China, not the U.S. 
how do they interact? What's their overall impact? Is one higher than the other on a higher order than the other? Uh, what, what's the interaction between these two blocks? Yeah, so, so some countries are actually members of both trade agreements. So countries like Japan, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Vietnam, uh, Singapore are part of, of both of these agreements. And so we could argue that for them, this, this is actually not a heavy lift because they are already abiding by higher standards that are outlined by TPP. And RCEP is, has been described often um, as a lower standard trade agreement. And what does that mean to be a lower standard trade agreement? So that, you know, for one, the timeline of enforcing the tariff reduction rules it's much longer than TPP. RCEP is giving countries up to about 20 years to actually implement these tariff reductions. Critics would also point out that RCEP does not have things like dealing with state-owned enterprise limitations, uh, that it has a lower standard when it comes to intellectual property protection. So it, that is why it's, it could be described as a lower level standard of a trade agreement. However, what it does is significant both in terms of making businesses much more efficient uh, because, for instance, we talk about the rules of origin in trade. So if you make something, if you make a, a lamp in, in one of the member countries of um, the RCEP uh, framework, you can, so long as it's sourced 40% from RCEP countries, it will be seen as made in RCEP and it could be traded anywhere tariff-free. That's a big deal. And that cuts off on the paperwork as well. And it really makes a lot of things very efficient for them. And the United States is, is missing out on a big opportunity in, in an area that it's doing really well because it really hasn't been hit by COVID. One question that kind of goes back a little bit in history on TPP then. We heard a lot during the Obama administration while TPP was being negotiated that if we didn't do TPP, then we were essentially ceding the rule writing to China. Did that bear out with this trade agreement that we're seeing that includes China? This really makes um, it a lot easier to do business across borders in ASEAN countries. So a lot of these had some kind of bilateral or uh, minilateral trade agreements. And a lot of the items have already been exempted through other trade deals. So this kind of makes it a lot more. It, that's why it's called comprehensive. Um, it's comprehensive in terms of membership. It's comprehensive in so far as it brings a lot of already existing trade agreements together. Um, but it does cut down on a lot of the red tape, um, it, which also means it cuts down on labor cost in terms of processing it. So that could be seen as a win for the region and a and it's been greatly welcomed by the business communities um, across the region. Um, but when it comes to the geopolitics, uh, that's a different question. So to talk about those geopolitics, I'm going to bring in Robert Daly, who is the director of the Kissinger Institute and frequent guest on this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us again, Robert. I'm going to put this same question to you. I think, you know, we, we've heard a lot in the last uh, several years that by not getting into TPP, it kind of played into the, the China bad theory. 
Um, what does this mean for China's ascendancy in the region in these sorts of trade deals and U.S. relations? Where does it place the United States when it comes to this? Is first one clarification for your listeners who may not spend much time on international trade, and this will be obvious to those who do. But when we say that RCEP is a regional comprehensive trading bloc or agreement that excludes the United States, this doesn't mean that the United States is kicked out of the region. The United States continues to have the same uh, active, you know, vibrant trade relationships that it has always had. It changes certain sets of conditions for countries in the region that the United States won't be party to in quite the same way. But I'm afraid that people who don't know about trade will hear this and sound like we're being pushed out, whereas in fact, that's that's not true. We still have vibrant trade relations. This is an important marginal change in many aspects of regional trade. But uh, what, the, what the final, well, what, what the rules are going to be once they stabilize, we still don't know necessarily. The United States under uh, President Biden may choose to join CPTPP. Uh, and in fact, just in the past two days, China's leader Xi Jinping has said that China may aspire to join the CPTPP, which is, as Shihoko has said, a higher level of rules. So this is not an end state with RCEP. Uh, it's, it's an important piece of news development uh, for the region. And yes, the, it does matter to China that the United States is not in it. Uh, it also matters that India is not in it. India had been part of these negotiations until fairly recently uh, and then dropped out because they didn't think it had enough provisions about uh, financial services where India has advantages in the region, including over China. And they didn't think it had enough protections from an inflow of consumer goods. So with India and the United States both out, China is the lodestone. It's the, sing it's the only elephant in this fairly big room. And so there is concern that that means that China, uh, which is very good at how to you know, gradually exercise its weight uh, within organizations like this, that China may end up dominating. There are concerns about that. During COVID, ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, those 10 nations that are now in RCEP, surpassed both the United States and the EU as China's leading trading partner. So there's a tremendous amount of activity in the region with China now the single biggest player in RCEP, with the United States still shunning these agreements and India staying out. And so, yes, this probably does tend to increase uh, China's ability to make rules in the region. And therefore, if the United States is not uh, an active presence trying to, to shape high quality rules, could over time uh, encourage bandwagoning with China. But this, is, this story is not over. Uh, and RCEP, I think, you know, Shihoko said, because there are still so many holes in it, it doesn't deal with things like e-commerce. Uh, Cross-border uh, transfers of data is fairly weak. There's very little in there about agriculture. Uh, there's still an awful lot of work to be done. And there is a lot of space for the United States to get back uh, into this. But President Biden is going to face significant hurdles. And then it's not clear that the Senate would ratify uh, any new uh, treaty that we would enter into. And there is still considerable skepticism uh, in the United States about the wisdom of globalization generally. So it will take a while for us to get back in the game. And then as importantly, to be seen as getting back in the game. 
I appreciate the clarification because I'm not a trade expert and we can't assume that all of our listeners are either. The point of this podcast is to help people get up to speed. So both of you helped me out with the trade podcast that we did almost a year ago. So listeners can go back to our Trading Views podcast where we looked at the new NAFTA, we looked at the China trade war, and we looked at the history of trade. I guess to both of you, as we look out on the horizon and Robert mentioned the challenges that Congress has when it becomes a very political issue, trade deals are not just about trade. They're about foreign policy. They're about labor, environmental standards. They're about so many things now. As we look out on the horizon, Robert, you first, what should Congress be looking out uh, when it comes to RCEP? and possibly getting back into some of these regional trade deals? The, the, the question for Congress, I think, is whether they want the United States to still be uh, the most influential or one of the most influential countries on Earth. This is the most populous, the most economically vibrant part of the world, and it's all about trade and economics. And uh, we cannot be involved in a way that is going to determine rules and practices unless we are part of these, you know, plurilateral agreements and get involved in that. That's a really pretty fundamental choice. Uh, we simply won't be seen as a serious player. We will still be welcomed as an offshore balancer. We will still have valuable bilateral relationships, including trade relationships. But Asia-Pacific or the, the Indo-Pacific isn't going to sit around and wait. Uh, I was reading a, a, an essay on this by Wendy Cutler of the uh, Asia Society's Policy Center, and she points out, this is on the political side, that through these RCEP negotiations, low quality though it may be, you've had an awful lot of ministers and negotiators from all these countries in the room with each other for eight years, and they formed a lot of relationships. They know each other better through this, and that has spillover effects into the region, including into the geostrategic area. It makes a profound difference. And uh, Wendy also points out that this is the region's now getting, it's getting some practice and finding its sea legs in making big moves without the United States. That's fairly new. And so Congress is gonna have to wonder about how much it likes the smoke when it puts that in its pipe and smokes it. Uh, we can't continue to claim that they're the, we're the world's you know, one indispensable nation uh, or that we're exercising global leadership when all these trains are leaving all these stations without us. And that doesn't mean that we jump on every single one. We have to be discerning. And I think that, you know, when President Biden says we need a foreign policy that works for the American middle class, he's trying to bridge these two sets of concerns. But I don't think he can do it unless there's a really concerted effort on the part of the administration. This will involve Congress, absolutely. Congress will be resistant to this. Others will be on board. But there needs to be public education about the real import and the complexities of globalization. In the 2016 election, the debate on it uh, was extremely shallow. It dealt in bumper stickers and it glossed over uh, many aspects of globalization that are indisputably good for the United States. Uh, there have been aspects of globalization that have been indisputably horrible for discrete uh, American communities where a lot of jobs were located, that's true. But there are also aspects of the domestic economy that Americans are unhappy with that have nothing to do with globalization, like the way that America carries out the distribution of income 
the gap of up to 700 times, which is, and it's been rising over the decades between uh, the salaries of CEOs and factory floor workers. Neither China nor globalization did that. That was us, right? So there needs to be, if we're to get back into leadership or even to being a major player, there needs to be a concerted public education effort about globalization. And yes, there needs to be uh, some limits on it to make sure that we're taking care of both our urban and rural distressed communities. And Shihoko, to you, what do you what do you see out there on the horizon that are sort of the flags that you think a policymaker needs to be looking out, out for? for? Um, well, first of all, I can't emphasize enough what Robert said about this um, hostility towards um, globalization on both uh, sides of the political aisle here in the United States. There is a consensus amongst Asian countries that trade is good, that trade actually grows the economy. I don't think that a lot of um, average Americans or even American um, political leaders would share that sentiment or they would actually have a big caveat to that. And of course, um, there are downsides to um, globalization and there is never going to be either a perfect trade agreement or a trade agreement that has no losers. There will always be losers as well as winners. But as the Biden administration takes office, one of the biggest challenges it will have is to address the economic, um, current economic situation in the United States and also to ensure America's competitiveness in the future. And although uh, trade relations um, can be a downside risk for the United States, equally important or perhaps more significant is the change in the industrialized base. And so the changes in technology, the changes in, in the economic structure of the world are things that the United States will really need to grapple with they are by not being part of a major trade agreement they are losing the opportunity to set the roadmap for the rules of new industries of new opportunities for growth and what's really interesting about RCEP is that um, it's going to establish a separate secretariat and a separate secretariat is not you know it, it can not necessarily be a big deal but given that we don't have a lot of rules for some of the most exciting and cutting edge industries out there, including data and data governance, and coupled with the fact that the WTO is, is effectively dysfunctional at the moment, there are going to be more opportunities for Asian countries to consult amongst one another to take it to the ASEAN and RCEP uh, regimes to go for dispute settlement and to negotiate and come to um, agreement amongst themselves without the United States. So this gives them further impetus to work without the United States to come up with new rules that will set the standards for industries that really determine the future of global growth. So I think we need to come to terms with the realities that Shihoko has just outlined. 
and also come to terms uh, with the question of scale. You know, we're less than 5% of the world's population. That means that more than 95% of the consumers for our companies are overseas. RCEP is an enormous uh, block or area. It's about 30% of global population and GDP. It's larger than the EU. And we cannot have the world's leading companies unless we are playing in the world's biggest markets. And those are outside of the United States. And that question of scale is also going to feed into the standards making powers uh, that Shihoko has just described. And again, especially for the listeners of this podcast, the rest of the world is on the move, setting up new secretariats, in some cases, new courts, new organizations, new trading blocks. When the United States, under the best of circumstances in the new Biden administration, is going to be involved mostly in an act of national healing, infrastructure, education, R&D. Uh, candidate Biden said he doesn't want to look at new trade agreements until we've improved the competitiveness of the American worker and rebuilt infrastructure. On the one hand, it's easy to sympathize with that. On the other hand, there is no time. The rest of the world doesn't take a time out uh, while we try to get our own house in order. They're moving, and as they do so, they get used to moving without us, effectively. And then when we come stumbling back in and saying, wait, 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 we're ready now, they will have moved on in many ways. And so the United States, and again, I don't mean to be playing down our tremendous domestic, especially economic issues, but we've got to walk on two legs from day one of the administration, internationally and domestically. We don't get to take a holiday from history. Um, much of the rest of the world, and especially the Asia Pacific, sees this as their time, and they're moving forward. And they're not hostile to American involvement. They value these relations, but they're also not going to win. Food for thought for our policymaker friends who take a listen to this podcast. Shihoko Goto and Robert Daly, thank you so much for joining me yet again to help us ground truth on these issues. 